Now as we gather this morning, we dust off from where we've come in the gospel according to Mark. It's a series we've had going on for a bit and uh, we took a break in it and this will be our next installment of it, so to speak. I want to ask you what you're looking at. Who are you looking at and what do you see? We are to see in this text who we are when we see, who we are when we open up the scriptures. I've titled this sermon Servants Beholding the Suffering Savior. Servants Beholding the Suffering Savior. We will see today, as we read, two accounts in Mark, or two narratives, two stories, describing two different views of Jesus. We have seen John from the beginning of Mark come on the scene of modern Israel where he proclaimed that the Lord would come in Mark 1. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and how God from heaven proclaimed that Jesus was his son. Jesus himself came saying, the time is fulfilled, is at hand, is now, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He came healing, this is in Mark chapter 1, and he exercised authority over demons whom he silenced. Funny in a way that the demons were the ones who knew who he was, who saw who he claimed to be. Yet people around him were amazed. They were misunderstanding who he was, what he came to do. I recently learned that the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament Bible is a little bit different than what Christians use. We end with, uh, we end with Malachi, yet they end with Zechariah. No, sorry, Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, it, it ends with that people come back from the exile, they start rebuilding the, the temple, yet the Davidic king is nowhere to be seen, as you would almost expect, that the, the final end of the, of the Torah, the Ketuvim, the Nevi'im, the, the gathered scriptures of Jews at the time, they are ruled over, in fact, by other kings. The devout Jew would look for the, a Davidic king to sit on David's throne, the promised king that was to come. When John spoke about the one to come, it would be clear that he spoke of the king. He said, I make ready the way for the king, he says in Mark 1. Yet when they saw Jesus, as John is almost saying this, they're like, who's this? He said, this is the king. And they said, who's this Jesus of Nazareth? As I said, Jesus came healing, teaching, and exercising, exercising the demons. Yet in the end of Mark 1, he leaves people not healed when he said, Let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. This is what the first section of Mark from chapter 1 to chapter 8, verse 21 to 26, is about with a narrative of Jesus healing blind men which is the culmination and conclusion that the people did not see who he was. So he is going from chapter 1 to chapter 8, healing, teaching on the kingdom, exercising, exor 
exercising his uh, authority over demons. And as we, as we came to Mark 8 and verses 21 to 26, there's a healing of a man with blind, who couldn't see, which Mark uses as a way of saying, all up till now, there's been blindness, and then it culminates with the healing of a blind man. I call this Act 1 in the story, as earlier in our sermon, sermon um, series, with Jesus' ministry in Galilee, that is how it's structured as a book. Jesus' ministry in Galilee, where the good news about Jesus is proclaimed and demonstrated. Then after chapter 8, verses, verses 27 and onwards, we come to Act 2 of this documentary drama, almost as Mark is very, he's trying to set the, say, set the scene, set the stage, set the characters, and he's telling more of a story, almost as you see it in a theater, compared to the other ones, other um, accordings of the Gospels. And now it is, we are at the end of this Act 2, where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. That is the, the other structure in Mark 2. He's going towards Jerusalem where the good news about Jesus is revealed. And in this, this act, we will conclude today. So this is why I'm giving you like a broad overview where we are in the story, where we are in Mark. So he came, he taught, he healed, he taught about the kingdom with the parables, yet no one, none saw who he was. In act two, we have seen him reveal himself on the Mount of Transfiguration, yet still people did not see who he was. And as we conclude this act today, we will see a similar ending as Act 1, that there will be the healing of a blind man. People did not see who Jesus was, his true identity, which is the key theme in Mark, misunderstandings of who Jesus is. They did not see who he was. And now in Act 2, we have been through the issue of Jesus' identity. The issue of being Jesus' disciple and now finally seeing the high values of the kingdom, which has been chapter 10. And we will end with sort of a continued confusion among the disciples before it also culminates and concludes with the healing, bringing a man sight. As Mark is using this as a narratival picture of blindness being healed to reveal himself. So we have seen, we have had issue of people not seeing Jesus and healing of blind men as book endings of this portion that we're in today. And in the middle of it, this act two, as I've called it, there are three instances where Jesus, he prophesies his own death and resurrection. First in Mark eight thirty one, that he will suffer, be rejected and killed. And he said this plainly, the text says. The disciples' response, Peter rebukes him for saying this. May it never be, Lord. And then Jesus turns around and says, Peter, you are not setting your things on the kingdom of the things of God. And the next time in 9.31, he says it also, yet the text says they did not understand. And right after this second time, the twelve are arguing, who is the greatest among them? 
Jesus says, I will die, I will be slain, I will be tormented. And the disciple, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. They're totally missing the point. Yet Jesus corrects them there in saying, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And the third time in our text today is in 10.32, where Jesus explains it more fully what will happen to him. The disciples' response, I want to be the greatest. I want the seat of honor. And the rest of the disciples gets outraged. They're clearly not seeing what following Jesus mean. And we might ask ourselves the question, do we understand what following Jesus is? You might have heard the saying, seeing is believing. Well, here in this text, it seems that seeing is serving, or seeing leads to serving. Again, the sermon title that I've chosen is Sermons, Servants Beholding the Suffering Savior. And I'll try to show you from this text two things. That Jesus, how, how the text, how Mark wants us to see that we are to behold Jesus and suffer as servants. And the second point will be to behold Jesus and serve him as saints. We'll get to them when we get there. So first, looking at verses 32 to 45, beholding him and suffer as servants. Behold, behold him and suffer as servants. Verse 32, as they were, and the, as they were on the road up to Jerusalem, Jesus walk, was walking ahead of them. And they, the disciples, were amazed, and those who followed the crowd were afraid. This is coming after three teachings the Lord has had in earlier in chapter 10 about what it means to follow Jesus in faithfulness, in humility, and in dependence. This is what Jesus has taught them already, how, what it means to follow him in faithfulness, in humility, and in dependence on him. And so Jesus here is on his way to his ultimate suffering, and he is walking determined towards his, face, his fate. Following Jesus is ultimately to live according to his example. And Mark is setting the camera view almost behind the disciples, seeing how the disciples are walking, but Jesus is walking in front of them, leading them. He is setting the camera up towards Jerusalem, which is a 32 kilometer walk and a one kilometer climb from where they are. So it's a pretty steep decline there onwards. He is walking up to his fate, up to his suffering. And as we will see, it's an uphill battle where he will ultimately be lifted up on the cross. But he is not lagging behind. He is leading the way like the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 50, who set his face like flint. He was determined. The disciples are lagging behind, astonished and afraid, while they wrestle with the theology Jesus has taught them about the kingdom and what it means to follow him. <clears throat> he then motions to the twelve to come near, and he wants to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, in verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, 
he will rise. This third prediction is more detailed than the two first. Jesus knew well the fate of his predecessors. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. And you may remember from our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 53, verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is the Davidic king that Jerusalem and the Jews were waiting for, yet they couldn't see him even as he was walking plainly in front of them. Mark 14, a little bit later, I'll read it. In Mark 14, 65, it's the narrative of when he is being tried by these elders and scribes. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. They blind him of some sort, either with a rag or with a bag or something. They, they blindfold him, they spit on him, and they hit him. And they're saying, prophesy, who did it? To mock him. No, they tried, to, they tried to blind the Messiah, their promised king. Yet it was they who were unable to see who he was. And what a terrible prophecy Jesus gives her. It should outrage us to read of our Lord handled so. He would go on to be handed over by the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jews, to be killed by the Gentiles, the Romans. The promised king the Sanhedrin was looking for, that was their everyday goal for the devout Jew, to search the scriptures, to be ready for his coming, to see the prophet that would come and make the way make ready the way for the king as they were. They had countless promises in the old scripture that the, the king would come and he would redeem them. But their hearts were blind. Yet Peter says later in Acts 2 that the Jews delivered him over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was not a whim that made them do it. Jesus knew where he was going. He knew this would happen because it was according to his plan. Yet he went all the same. Following then in our text, we see the ridiculous request of James and John in Mark 10. One commentator has characterized this section as the self-serving sons of Zebedee and the self-sacrificing son of man which I thought was fitting. Self-serving sons of Zebedee and the self-sacrificing son of man, he called it. Verse 35. They came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus asked, asked them, What do you want me to do for you? They wanted to grant, him, grant them to sit at his right and his left hand in glory. What arrogance. What pride. This is the third time the disciples have striven for position and prestige after Jesus' passion prediction. I think it must be one of the most outrageous examples of human self-centeredness in contrast to Jesus' humility and self-sacrifice. He's, he's just said, 
I will be spit upon, I will be hit, and I will be killed. And how do the disciples respond? Well, when you get your glory, can we get the chief spots? It's like, what? One commentator said that Jesus will now go on to teach the twelve that the economy of God's kingdom is not based on power and control, but on serving and giving. For the latter are not only the ethics of the kingdom, but the means of redemption. This commentator said that serving and giving is the way almost that you show how you look at Jesus. If you're not beholding Jesus rightly, you will think, well, I can be great in the kingdom. But then there's something really messed up with your theology and your view of God. But if you see Jesus for who he is, as I hope this text will teach us, you will be driven on to follow him in servants, servitude and to give your life. Before we get all riled up with this arrogance of the two, let's remember who we're dealing with. It is James and John, the sons of thunder, as they are termed otherwhere in the Bible, who along with Peter, so James, John, and Peter are reckoned as almost like the core circle of Jesus. They go with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They go with him on selected missions. They come into the houses where he heals people why he says the rest of you just stay outside with the people. So it's the inner circle who comes, except for Peter. They were the prime disciples, if you would. They saw Jesus in a glimmer of glory when he revealed who he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, along with Moses and Elijah. And they saw him. They saw him shining. They saw him bright. It's like he was, the veil of his humanity was almost opened up so they could see his true colors. They could see him for who he was. Yet they, even they who had seen such a clear representation of Jesus, they had seen him in person, were not seeing him rightly. They were even eligible for evil thoughts. Even they were tempted to sin and they asked to give them uh, what they asked gave them away it's like a child who asked their parents mommy daddy can you please say yes to whatever i'm going to ask you before i ask it's like no (laughs) or like asking someone to sign a contract without telling them what the contract is like sign this contract please well what is it about not just sign it jesus is asking what do you want me to do for you This is the central question of today's message. What do you want me to do for you? The answer to this question, both by the the apostles and by us, reveals our motives when we ask. It reveals if we see Jesus rightly. And I want you to ask yourself, do we? Do we see Jesus rightly? Jesus will ask the same question to the blind man in the following narrative that we will come to. And we will see the difference in the answers. Bartimaeus will ask for faith. James and John will ask for fame. It seems like James and John have not paid attention in class. 
They're seeing the crowd of people following Jesus as they're going up towards Jerusalem, the seat of power, although they were ruled over by different kings, different rulers. They see a parade, a procession of grandeur. They're like, yes, we know he's the king of the Jews. We know who he is. We're going to become enthroned. Jesus, can we sit at your right and your left hand? And Jesus is like, you are not understanding what you're asking. They do acknowledge Jesus, as I said, to be the Christ. They've called him the Messiah. They, they have some understanding of who he is. It's not like they're totally blind, but they're not seeing clearly. And they believe that he will inter- inherit his messianic kingdom in Jerusalem when they get there. And so they ask him to be as close to him, as a close side of honor as it can get. In many customs, the, the one who led a procession was the main, main importance it would be this, he would be the captain, the general, the prince, the lord, whatever. He would be leading the procession. And close to him would be those who held, held the seat of honor in his retinue. Or at the head of the table was the one who had supreme worth or authority. And the left and well, right and left side of him, they would be his prime guest of honor. They are honoring Jesus by addressing him correctly while hoping to achieve honor themselves along the way. True worship is not, what can I gain from Christ? But what gain is Christ? True worship is not coming to Jesus to gain something from him, but it is to see that he is gain. Paul says later, in a letter, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He saw dying as a form of gain because he knew he would be with the Savior. He would not get anything. He would not be, he would not be elevated to a great position. He would die, but yet he saw that as gain, for he knew that if I die or when I die, I will be with my Lord, and that is all I want. That is all I ask for. We worship not to gain Christ, but we worship him who is worthy. And that is our gain, to be with him. Jesus clearly knows, verse 38, that they do not know what they're asking. And so he asks them if they are able to drink the cup that he is to drink or to be baptized with the baptism he is to be baptized with. And they glibly and arrogantly say, yes, we are able. Jesus then grants them to drink and to be baptized, but he does not give them the seats of honor, for as he says, it's the fathers to grant to those for, for whom it has been prepared for. These disciples were not theologians supreme, but they would have been exposed to the Old Testament day by day by their parents, week by week in the synagogue by the rabbis. They must have heard the scroll of Isaiah read where in chapter 51 of Isaiah, verse 22, it reads, Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. In Isaiah, it speaks of the cup of wrath 
that is to come. But the Lord has taken it away from his people. So, so the people does not need to drink it anymore. And this is the gracious promise of God. That, so in the Bible, the image of cup has two meanings. There are two cups in the Bible. There's the cup of blessing and there's the cup of wrath. Psalm 11 speaks of snares, fire, brimstone, that the cup will, that will be the cup for the wicked. Psalm 16 says that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. This is what I've chosen. This is my joy, my blessing. And the familiar psalm in Psalm 23, the Good Shepherd, the goodness of the Lord is a cup that overflows. Psalm 75 speaks of the cup of judgment. That is, the wicked of the earth must, must drink to the very last drop. Psalm 116 speaks of the cup of salvation. Throughout the prophets, it's spoken of the cup of fury several times, the cup of evil and drunkenness, the cup of judgment, the cup of sorrow. Our Lord himself will ask in Mark 14 that the cup might be taken away from him. Yet here these two disciples are clueless of which cup Jesus is speaking of. Jesus says as much to them, you do not know what you're asking. They thought it would be the cup of blessing Jesus would receive as he entered Jerusalem, that he would receive honor, he would receive praise, his kingdom. And they were like, yes, can we get some? And he's like, you're going to get the cup, you're going to get the baptism, but it's not the one you think it is. He doesn't rebuke them, but he says, you will get a, you'll get a portion of this. They foolishly asked Jesus for something that was not after his will. But how merciful Jesus is with them. He does not say, you, he doesn't call them names. He doesn't say, you are blaspheming. You don't get it. Go away from me. You're clearly not seeing. He is merciful and slow to anger with them. He's explaining it to them. You're not understanding what you're saying. As a, as a patient parent would be. And how merciful the Lord is with us in the same ways. Do we always pray for what is right? Do we always pray rightly according to God's word after his name? When we ask, can you please give me this? Is that a good prayer? Is that a prayer we think the Lord will answer with yes? But we are not rebuked most times. Not that we know directly, at least. Even if we ask for things out of selfishness or ill motives, we're not rebuked. Nor are we always granted what we pray for. The first disciples were quick, were quick to claim the convenience of God's kingdom, but they were slow to get the cost of the kingdom. Jesus was to drink the judgment of God upon sin, and so he had to undergo a baptism which also connotes connotes being overwhelmed, being covered almost. Uh, in the Old Testament, that there are many, speak of many kinds of baptism. Is the baptism of, of cleansing. If you put your finger in a palm of oil, if you baptize holy vessels in, in water, he would be baptized with judgment. It is pointing to the death he would die they would drink the cup and be baptized as they would go on to die for the message of salvation they preached after Jesus' resurrection. 
John, if you see, went on to write one of the Gospels. Even he didn't see it. One of the writers of the Gospel did not see who Jesus was at first. But he was given mercy and was allowed to stay on, to learn from him. And he would write several letters to the church of the love of Christ. They did not get it then, but they would see who he was and what it meant to follow him. The other disciples heard it and began to be indignant at James and John, verse 41. Jesus called them to him and told them, you're still missing the point. You do not see how it is in the kingdom. The rulers of the Gentiles, they, they in the godless world, almost meaning, they lord it over them. They're like, I'm your boss. I decide you're beneath me, but it shall not be so among you. No, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And the first among you, maybe even looking at James or John, I don't want to speculate too much, must be the slave of all. Peter will have gotten this later after the resurrection when he exhorts the elders in the church to be witnesses of the sufferings of Christ as well as partakers in the glory of Christ. That the leaders are to be shepherds, not under compulsion but willingly, and not for shameful gain, Peter says later in his letters. He says, lead them by example. He had learned the lesson of Christ, not so with you as it shall not be this way among you. Let us also be eager and zealous to listen to our Lord's teaching and instruction at this point. That we're not to, to compete, we're not to lord over one another, but we're to serve all. Jesus said, whoever wants to become great must become a servant. And the one who wants to be first must be a slave of all. The great virtue of God's kingdom is not power, not freedom, but service and love. Service is love made seen. You can't see love if, it only, if it's only words or feelings necessarily. But when you serve one another, it says in the Bible that they will see the great love you have for one another. This is our spirit, to be our spirit, how we, how we live, how we walk. He says, a slave being first, the great servant. It's like a camel going through the eye of the needle, as we've seen earlier in Mark 10, or as you've read it prior. It seems paradoxical. To become great, you must become little. To become the first, you must be a slave. It is not to say, I want to become great. I want to become the first. So to do that, I will become a servant and a slave to get where I want to be. It's not that. That shows if the heart is in the wrong place. We're called to serve one another, not to gain favor with God for doing it. It is about following the example of Jesus. As he says in verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we read earlier today in Isaiah 53:10, it says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Paul tells the Corinthians in its chapter 8 that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was that even though he was rich, he became poor. He became lowly to raise us up. And what a rich grace he has poured out on us. That is truly the cup of blessing he has given us as he took the cup of wrath of sin that was rightly ours to drink to the last drop, to drink it fully, the wrath against sin. Yet as Romans 4 will go on to say, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification to be made right. Make, he made us right by his death. He canceled out the debt that was against us. And so he raised it up, us up and made us just according to, the, to God's standard. He said, <clears throat> for even the Son of Man came for even. So I was taught once that whenever there's a for in the Bible, see what it's there for. He is saying, verse 43, it shall not be so among you. You will not war with one another. Be each other's servants, even to the degree of being each other's slave. 45, for even, or really serve one another because I came to serve. You will serve because I served. Do this as you follow me, is what he's saying. It's not, you please serve, I came to serve. He's saying, serve one another, for I came serving. Serve one another because I came to serve. There will be trials and tribulations for the disciples, for us, not as heavy as Christ's. Yet he says that the world will not like us as we follow him or as we live as he tells us to. It is not a question. It's not a question about which spiritual gift you have. Do you have the spiritual gift of serving? No. Serving should be the foundation of all our Christian walk. We serve him and we serve one another. He's, he says that it culminates the, the law in two great commandments. Love God and love one another. He says that is the culmination and the fulfillment of all the law. If you love one another, you won't lie. If you love God, you will act rightly. You will honor his name. You will not profane his name. If you love one another, you won't, you won't kill anyone. You won't steal. You won't lie. You won't want the things of another. He says... Loving God and loving one another is the culmination and fulfillment of the law. And it says, serve one another with this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for his people, for his elect, for his church, those whom he has called out of darkness. He gave himself as a ransom. Today, if we hear ransom, it is of someone who's kidnapped and to get them back, you have to pay the kidnappers ransom to give them back to you. Then it was more to refer as to pay to set one out of prison or to free a slave out of service. It was to buy their freedom. The Greek word for it, litron, means to cover over. 
to atone for, that is to make reparations for, to make something right, to repair. That is where we got our word to repair something. It is damaged, it is, is destroyed. We repair it, we make reparations for what's happened. If, if you wrong a brother or sister, you make reparations for the relationship. And that is to atone. But it's not just a covering over our guilt like a blanket. He just, there's our sin. He just puts atonement on it. It's like, done. He is the active part in it. He is covering himself over us. He had to give his own life, his own, he had to die. And then so he is the active covering over his people by his blood. What a love he has loved us with. He gave himself so that all his people could go free. A Christian then is one who follows the way of the Lord. Behold him and suffer, if you must, as his servants. Serve him and serve one another. The second narrative then, and the second point. Looking at verse 46 to 52. Behold him and serve as saints. Behold him and serve as saints. As we now move into verse 46, we encounter the healing of the blind Bartimaeus. To what I could gather as I prepared and as I studied this text, it is the, sing- it's the only time in the four synaptic gospel, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, where the one healed is named. Everyone, every other time, it's the Samaritan woman, it's this man, it was the leper, it was this blind man, it was this, the leader of the synagogue, but he's not named. But this time, it is a person named and described. The story of this blind beggar who sees Jesus more clearly for who he is than those who could see serves as the culmination of Mark's teaching on faith and discipleship. Verse 46. And they came to Jericho, which was on their way up to Jerusalem. And as he was leaving Jericho with the disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Here, as they come to Jericho and move on to the final stretch to Jerusalem, they've grown to a great crowd of people following them, which would naturally make some noise and stir up people that sees them. And there on on the roadside sits blind Bartimaeus. Picture it. He is sitting there. He has been blind for, it doesn't say how long in this, this narration of it. But he's sitting, begging, and he is, well, blind. And he hears this buzzing, this commotion. He's like, maybe at first he just ignores it. But then he's like, this is continuing. It's growing. Like, what's going on? And people say, it's Jesus of Nazareth coming by. He himself was ignored and sidelined. As a commentator puts it, the difference in his position beside the road at the beginning of the story and on the road at the end of the, of the story signifies the difference between being an outsider and an insider. A bystander, one who just spectates or doesn't care of what happens, and a disciple who follows. He sits there, 
not even a bystander. He is ignored. He is behind the crowd. But the energy in the air and the growing hustle and bustle, he says, what is going on? What's happening? My words, but he's asking. It is Jesus of Nazareth passing by. Jesus? Jesus? Verse 47, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He lacks eyesight, yet he sees more than all those around him. This is the second time Mark has identified him as Jesus of Nazareth, more of a title, more than just Peter of Massey. It was not just, oh, Jesus who came from Nazareth. It was almost a title he got. One treated with reverence. First time it was in Mark 1, and it was a demon who rightly identified him. A demon, and now a blind man, The demon says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Remember that I said that the last book in Hebrew, the Hebrew Old Testament, ends with a longing for the Davidic king. Ever since God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, where God promised to establish his throne and there would always be a Davidic king, one in the line of David, to sit on it and rule his people. Every pious and zealous Israelite has been waiting for this Davidic descendant. They knew God is is God who keeps his promises. They'd seen it, they'd read it, they'd heard it, they'd lived through it, all the way to exile, all the way back, Yet they are, lack, they are lacking a king and they're waiting for one. The son, the son of David was this title that was used to refer to this warrior king who would punish sinners. Yet here in the blind beggar, he treats it as a king of mercy. He asks, son of David, show mercy This blind beggar sees this man of Nazareth as the Son of God, the Messiah, in whom he places his faith and hope who can bring him healing and wholeness. Now many of the the crowd rebuked him, saying, Be silent. The road, the people beside it, who see this crowd going by, and Bartimaeus is just sitting somewhere left by himself in in the dark. And they're saying, Hush! We're watching the Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth going by. Quiet. But he won't be quieted. He just shouts out even more, Son of David, have mercy on me. He would not be silent. He could not let his moment go go past him, nor the man. He saw, he, I heard one say that what he saw outweighed what he didn't see. He saw that this is not just a man. This is not just a prophet. This is not just a good teacher. This is the king that I've been waiting for. He sees Jesus as king before anyone else could see it. He sees blindness as curable. And he sees this moment to be the turning point in his life. Can we imitate him? Can we? In the plan and providence of God's sovereignty, Jesus knows that Bartimaeus would be there. 
Jesus even picked that route to collide with Bartimaeus before the world was made. 49, Jesus stopped and called him to him. The Greek gives a tiny bit more oomph and says, Jesus stood still like he was waiting. I'm not going anywhere. This blind beggar was the sole reason why Jesus was here at this point at this time. And so he stands still and calls Bartimaeus to himself. Bartimaeus throws off the cloak that he's been sitting on, that's been keeping him warm and shielding him from the elements and maybe from the people. Maybe stumbling, maybe led, but he comes to Jesus. Like he's blind. He has been sitting there behind the people. How does he get to Jesus? Well, either he stumbles and you can see him eager. It doesn't stop him. Or he gets help once Jesus says, Come. This cloak might be the only thing he owned. In Mark 13, a little bit later, Jesus will speak of the desolation of Jerusalem. And he says, do not even turn back to get your cloak. Don't get your belongings. Don't get what you have. Don't even get the least necessity of comfort. This man throws it all off. He leaves the lily he has, and he turns his hope to Jesus. Jesus asks him, as he asked James and John in, in verse 51 now, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man replies, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. The sons of thunder ask for extraordinary glory. The son of Timaeus ask for divine mercy. Jesus was not blind. He could see what was ailing Bartimaeus. Why does he even need to ask? But he asks to give Bartimaeus an, ex an, not an excuse, but an opportunity to voice his concern, his prayer. And Jesus could also see that what was ailing Bartimaeus was not the blindness, because blindness was not a problem for Jesus, but it was the restoration of his whole person. He was, as a blind person or as a cripple, you could not, you could not contribute to the society. You were left to yourself to beg day in, day out, hoping for mercy. But now here, we see the king of mercy come to him. The blind beggar, the nobody, was treated as a nobody, but he was somebody that Jesus would redeem. Bartimaeus says, Rabbi, I want to see. In Greek, he uses a more formal and reverent version, Rabuni. It's still rabbi, it's still teacher, but it's more of a polite and reverent way of saying it. The same that Mary uses when she sees him resurrected. She, she doesn't say, oh, teacher. It's teacher. It's Rabuni. And apparently, in Jewish literature at the time, seldom or never used this Rabuni to refer to any teacher, any human. It was used in address to God as in prayer. He was the Rabuni. He was the teacher. And now Bartimaeus says, Rabuni, can I see? The one who saw so much more than everyone else asked, can I see? And so humbly, he does not ask for power or glory but for mercy and the ability to see, even to see the king he saw while still blind. All the poor, wretch, 
wanted to see. That was, that was all he wanted. He wanted to see. A normal thing we might think, of course he wants to see. But that would be the world to him. He would have been in darkness. He would not have imagined being in a dark room 24-7, never seeing anyone, never seeing anything, being locked behind a dark prison and not be able, being able to see anything, but then to be restored and see all and see him. Jesus said to him, verse 52, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith almost has healed you. The Greek word for healed also means saved in some instances, giving a spiritual dimension to the physical healing as he now would be all well. There's not a full equity if you're healed, you're saved, but it has a connotation that is more than just repairing of the body, but a more restorer of the full person not in salvation, so to speak. But I think in this case, we can see that it surely led to that. In fact, immediately after he recovered his sight, he followed him on the way. This is how Mark wants to describe to his listeners, to us, how a disciple, how a disciple is. One who does not seek to be great, but a wretch who asks for mercy. And so follows him and serves him as a saint. Let us do the same. Let us cast off arrogance or any ill motive. Let us see him rightly. Let us follow him. Serve him and one another. And as we do, we serve him as saints. We do not serve him as prisoners, but we are redeemed people. He gave himself to call out his people. In the Bible, the church is called the ecclesia, the called out ones. And Paul even addresses the Corinthians who had so much sin in their midst as saints. They were not any longer just common people. I don't want to even put it like that, but they were restored even though they were not perfect. He called them saints. A saint is not one we pray to, but a saint is what we are because of Jesus' redemption of us. It's one who follows Jesus. What a love he has loved us with. He gave himself so that all his people could go free. As I said, a Christian then is one who follows the way of the Lord. Behold him and suffer as servants. Behold him and serve as saints. As we all go on the way, as we follow him, as uh, we strive to live by faith in the Son of God. And it's, one, it's not one who seeks for his own glory, but one who seeks to give glory to God. If we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him in the resurrection. Truly knowing Jesus is seeing him for who he is. He is the Savior who by his blood ransomed people covered their sin with himself, not a pity, not a weak sacrifice, not a cheap one for all that matters. It was the most expensive sacrifice he could make. It was himself. As a parent would shield a child for danger, he shielded us from the wrath that was poured out. 
and he consumed it all and he rose us up having paid it all. He is the Savior by whose blood ransomed people from God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, as Revelation 5, 9 says. So let us therefore serve him zealously, eagerly awaiting his coming. I want to end with Psalm 34, a, verse, a few verses there. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but for those who seek the Lord, lack no good thing. The disciples, even though they followed him closely, did not see him fully yet. Yet the blind beggar saw him clearly for who he was. Let us not be like the disciples in this narrative. Let us be like the blind beggar who asks for mercy and then follows Christ, even if it leads on the uphill battle, uphill road to Jerusalem. Let us be like servants who behold the suffering Savior. Let us be ready to suffer. Let us glory in serving him as he has ransomed the people for himself to be saints. It is only then when we behold the suffering Savior that we can truly understand what it means to follow him. So let us seek Jesus with all our hearts and be willing to follow him wherever he leads us, even if it means an uphill road to the cross.